0: I'm Rosie Maddio, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls for mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. Today, we're joined by award-winning author Heather Cabot, who will be telling us about her new book, The New Chardonnay. Welcome, Heather Cabot. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you here today. And so, for listeners who might not be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about your background. What prompted you to write a book about the cannabis industry for mainstream audiences?
1: Well, I am from the mainstream media. I mean, that really is my background. Um, I started out as a te- local television news reporter, um, went to Columbia Journalism School, and and then went, you know, did the very typical local TV reporter thing, where I went from market to market and worked as a local TV news reporter and anchor, um, and then ultimately ended up at ABC News and The Network, um, where I was a correspondent for all of the ABC affiliates at one point. Um, And then for The Network for GMA and World News Tonight. And then uh, right before I had my twins, I was the anchor of World News Now and World News This Morning, which is the overnight and early morning news. So my background is very much in broadcast. And then I transitioned, I would say after I had my kids, Um, I had the opportunity to kind of move into the tech world. And I went to work for Yahoo as their national consumer spokesperson. That was an amazing job. And I I ultimately, um, I was there for more than five years. um, And I did, you know, I had a regular appearance on the Today Show. You know, I did a ton of talk shows. And my whole role was really explaining for the layperson, you know, the 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 internet revolution and how it was really changing our day to day lives, and so that was yeah. It actually, that actually led me to transition into writing books because I spent um, all of this time telling these stories about internet trends, and I ultimately ended up meeting a lot of women who were starting tech, st- you know, startups, and so that led me to write my first book, which I co-authored, called Geek Girl Rising: Inside the Sisterhood Shaking Up Tech.
0: Um, it's which is an awesome book. I read it. My daughters have read it. So, um, Thank you. girling actually having you on the show. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Well, so, and the reason why that's relevant is because through my research on Geek Girl Rising, one of the things that um, my co-author and I wrote about in that book is, was about women investing in women-led tech startups. And so some of the women that were in that network who I had written about, I noticed were starting to invest in cannabis. And I really didn't know anything about cannabis at all. And I I say this often, I say it in the book, you know, I'm a just say no kid. I grew up in the eighties and I I just really, it was, you know, marijuana was just nothing in my day-to-day life. Like it just wasn't. And so I thought it was really strange that these people that I thought were very straight-laced and, you know, Wall Street backgrounds, that they were now investing in something that was still federally illegal. And I thought that is just bizarre. And then at the same time, You know, it was around 2017, so we were starting to see things like, you know, Martha and Snoop's potluck party was on the air, and, you know, suddenly Oprah magazine is covering Kikoko and, you know, the THC tea parties, and all of these things were happening. And I was noticing that that cannabis really seemed to be coming out of the shadows, and I really didn't understand why. And also, as a mother of teens myself, I, I wanted to understand, you know, I'm a curious person, so I started making calls and, You know, the story is uh, Jean Sullivan, who is a longtime investor, early investor in the cannabis space, and somebody that I knew through angel investing um, here in New York, she said, if you really want to understand this industry, you have to go to the marijuana business convention. You need to go see it with your own eyes, because she's like, I really can't explain to you what's happening without you actually going there, walking the expo floor, and actually meeting these people who are building these companies. So I went and I was completely hooked. What year it was, was it? It was, it was the fall of 2017. Press was ready really big back then. Yeah, it, yeah. It was, and it was, you know, it was, it was like right before all these companies were going public right. in Canada. I mean, I could not have gone at a better time. And I think because of that, and because all the hype around it was happening at that time, it made the experience even more incongruous than like what I thought. Like here I was thinking... And my family thought this too. I was going to walk in and everyone was going to be stoned and it was going to be like people in tie dye. And like, I mean, I had no idea. I was thinking it was going to be more like a, like a cannabis cup kind of event, you know, where people were consuming. I did not know. I mean, I have been to CES through working in tech. I didn't know that it was going to be like CES, you know, which for people who know that's the Consumer Electronics Show. I mean, I was assuming, you know, what everything I thought it was going to be was the complete opposite. And so as a reporter, the, you know, I was intrigued more than ever because I felt like, wow, there are probably so many other people out there that have these same um, misconceptions about what's happening here. And the other thing was, that I realized was how big it was. And that, wow, you know, even though I live in a state, I live in New York, you know, where adult use, and even at that time, it was barely being discussed in New York, really did not come to the fore until 2018 when Cynthia Nixon got into the gubernatorial race and was challenging Governor Cuomo. So it wasn't even really being discussed so much here. But I think just going there and being there in Vegas and seeing people who were there, the kinds of people who were there, the, the big agricultural equipment. I mean, it just was so not what I thought it was. I just felt like this is a really fascinating story and I want to I learn about it. So that was a long-winded way of saying that's kind of how it started. And,
0: and you mentioned it, you know, the perception you had, or maybe your family had. Did you experience any pushback from your peers or family members or these, uh, you'd worked, you know, with some of these like big tech startups? I know you were starting to see some of the women come into the space, but what was, you know, the reaction? People saw that you were starting to talk about space, think about the space. What was it like, you know, being a New Yorker where I still, you know, well, like you said, 2017, it was not really part of the vernacular. I have a very similar experience to you where, you know, three years ago, people were like, ha, so cute what you do. And now it's 2020 and everyone's got a cannabis and crypto trade, right? So what, What was that like when you first told people?
1: Certainly, my parents were like. In fact, when I told, I remember um, telling them I was going to go to this to the conference, and they were like, "Are you going to be okay? Like that's safe? Like they were really they thought I was going to be like hanging out with drug dealers. Like they just they had no idea. And by the way, like I'm 50, and they were still worried about this. And um, my kids, you know, I have I at the time both of my kids were in sixth grade, and they were like mortified that I was working on this topic. Like they were like, do not tell anyone that you are working on a book about this. This is so embarrassing. You know, we don't want anyone to know. Um, but what's really funny is that as I went, you know, it's just the same experience as you, like as I continued to delve into it and realized that there was this really amazing rich story here. And I should say also the other thing that drew me to the space and to the story is the whole, history of the drug war and how the industry is grappling with social equity and of course coming out of my first book which was all about gender equity and people of underrepresented backgrounds having a seat at the table that that was definitely a lens that I was coming to it with because I personally am really interested in that but um, it was very funny to see suddenly I was kind of embarrassed about talking about it. And all of a sudden, back to school night this past year, like people could most not- most popular
0: mom there, aren't you? Most popular
1: mom there. <laughs> yeah. People coming up to me and when's your book coming out? You know, it was so funny though. And so to be reporting during that shift, you know, it was great because that's kind of what I was capturing in the book too. Because I follow the four main characters in the book pretty much from I tell their backstory from twenty twelve to like the fall of twenty nineteen, but I was really spending time with them, embedded with them from, let's say, you know, the fall, late maybe winter of 2017 through, you know, through now. So to be with them during the boom and then the bust and the vaping crisis and COVID, and it's been so interesting.
0: Yeah. And, you know, you've been following, you know, these women around for the past couple of years and you started the research process, like we said, like almost five years ago what are the major shifts or attitudes in consumer behavior compared to when you first started the reporting? Like, how have you seen a shift there? Because I mean, it's like light years in five years. Yeah. So talk to me about that a little bit.
1: I mean, the biggest shift is CBD. You know, I right. think the biggest shift here is we saw, you know, with the passage of the farm bill in the fall of, you know, I guess it was December of 2018, how that opened up this entire new market to to, to the country. Um, and the, the companies that seized on that, for better or for worse, to make health claims and, and, you know, put products, you know, in all kinds of places that you never would have seen them before, Bed Bath & Beyond and Sephora. And that, I think, really, if people were, were a little bit kind curious before, that shift and suddenly seeing celebrities, Martha Stewart, you know, for example, I mean, who can be more mainstream than Martha Stewart? You know the fact that she's, you know, developing CBD products with canopy growth—that was a real moment. And there were a lot of those that were happening. That I think for people who, in the past, maybe maybe they were kind of curious, but they didn't really talk about it. Suddenly, when they're seeing it just out everywhere, and you can't really even avoid it. I mean, my goodness, now people are making jokes about, you know, all the silly products that are coming out, like the CBD pillow. And I mean, just like these—I know—it's I mean, you know, just kind of silly. But you know, um, I think at the same time people and people I know are looking for natural remedies. They don't want to take Ambien, for example, which I talk about in the book, you know, like they don't, I mean, people of my age, you know, my contemporaries, like we're all complaining about insomnia. We're all complaining, especially now with COVID, right? Everybody's right. complaining about stress. Everybody's complaining about anxiety. You know, you get a little bit older, you're, comp- you're complaining about pain. And I think with the opioid crisis, more than ever, people are very sensitive to even, you know they're 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 worried about taking prescription medications and so they want something they can buy over the counter that's accessible and easy and so there's an appetite for that and then i think the other thing which i write about in the book is also the trend in self care and wellness which is really you know taken off in the last few years so you have this confluence of different things happening all at the same time and this appetite for you know wellness remedies natural remedies Then you have celebrities kind of legitimizing it too. I mean, you know, Kim Kardashian with the CBD baby shower. That's another example.
0: That was wild.
1: (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Is that a theme now, right? Like a CBD baby shower? (laughs) No, I don't know. But it just that you see someone doing that with the reach that she has. That normalizes it in a way that I don't think many people would have expected. So I think it accelerated um, people's interest, curiosity, and maybe an acceptance of it.
0: Right. And do you think that it's the celebrity and the wellness side of it that's really um pulling new people into cannabis or like a particular demographic that you're surprised that's engaging illegal cannabis? Like what's really resonating and who like the unexpected people that are really coming into the space?
1: You know, it'll be interesting to see how it all bears out, right? I think the marketers are very keen on capitalizing on this wellness trend, you know, and self-care. So- you'll probably remember this, like even a few years ago, you talk to people and they'd be like, oh, well, I'm not for recreational, but I'm for, I'm for medical. Right, like right. I'm okay with medical. And so what I think what some of these companies did that was very smart is they sort of merged the two and they sort of said, first of all, they set about educating people about the fact that there are compounds of this plant, you know, that are not intoxicating. And I think that was really important. And obviously that's a conversation that is continuing to happen. And, and there is still a lot of confusion around that, but I think seizing on that and, and helping people understand that, you know, this is not about, you know, you can use these products and not be stoned or couch locked or, you know, all the negative stereotypes that we have about it. Um, so I think, I think there, there's that. Um, and I think that, I just think they were very smart and, and also because they wanted to reach this more affluent female customer. They're really, really sort of going where the customers are now. Well, it remains to be seen whether or not, you know, the uh, chief household officers, you know, we chief household officers will end up completely dominating the space. Like I was talking to, um, I actually was interviewing, um, and they're in my book too, um, the two women who founded garden society.
0: Oh, right. I love them.
1: Right. And they're like a female focused, um, edibles and va- vaping and lifestyle brand in, in wine country. Um, and they, in the, mid- in the middle of the pandemic, they shifted to a delivery model. You know, it was interesting. They market their products to women, but 40% of their customers are still are men. So wow. that was of interesting to me. So I don't, I don't know, you know, we'll have to really see. I think the idea is that these customers who are women who are looking for a different type of experience, who are looking to experiment with cannabis or CBD to deal with wellness kinds of issues, I think, I think that's what they're betting on. I mean, I don't know, we know, how it's ultimately going to shake out, but that's that's what I see. And I I remember even, you know, um, early on speaking to MedMen. You know, I actually spent three days embedded in the MedMen offices and like visiting their grows and all of this stuff right in early February 2018. Like right. right, so, so really of- the peak there, yeah, for them. In fact, I was there when they, I actually went to one of their marketing meetings when they were developing their magazine, Ember. Wow, Ember, wow. And they were talking about this whole idea of reaching this different type of consumer. And even as, you know, the months went on and I continued to talk to them, the shift to wellness was very much a part of their strategy. Right. And I think you see other brands that have realized that, and and then and then the other thing I'm sorry the other thing that happened too is that companies that were sort of straight up in, in places like California for example where they they offered um, products that you know both had THC and CBD a lot of these a lot of these brands figured out how to create a whole new vertical around just CBD that right. they could ship nationwide that you know it was another big shift to kind of once they realized with the farm bill that it opened up a national market you saw a lot of people rushing to do that and fig, and you know quickly putting together e-commerce so they could reach that that market and so that again i think drives awareness so yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but No, you
0: you definitely did. And and I agree. And that's some of like the trends that we're seeing too. And it's also like a branding thing, right? If you can only sell your uh, you know, legal THC product in California had to gain national presence when everyone has their eye, you know, on the prize there, maybe C B D is the way to start building that brand outside of, you know, your market. But yeah. you know, you mentioned like um, you know, Erin and Garden Society and, you know, being embedded in that men. So like as a journalist, you know, that crucial part is identifying strong characters to carry their porting through. Who were some of the more notable, impressive people you've covered, and why do you think mainstream audiences had like had to learn about their stories? Right, like your new um, in your in the new Chardonnay, your new book, you really you know follow some characters. Talk to us, like what's compelling to you and what really resonates with readers.
1: Well, we'll see because the book hasn't come out yet. I hope right. I hope right. that these characters resonate with readers. So I I think the first thing to say is that um, cannabis is an incredibly complicated and nuanced topic. I had no idea. I had no idea how long it was going to take me to wrap my arms around it. And I'm still learning. I mean, it is so complicated. I mean, even if you just consider, you know, the botanical aspect, the agricultural aspect, the science, and and then there's, you know, there's the business story, there's the whole social justice story, there's the politics, there's, There's the economics of it. There's the, the, you know, the business models, the fragmented market. I mean, it is so complicated. And so I felt that I didn't wanna write the sort of dry, like, and frankly, people have done this before, right? Like people have written books about marijuana before, like that's been done. I wanted to write a really entertaining story. And I wanted to find characters that had universal appeal. From a human point of view like every single character in this book is dealing with a personal challenge and a a personal they're driven to go into this industry and take all the risks that they that they do for a lot of different reasons um you know for some it's redemption for some you know it's it's about social justice for you know but they all have this and so that's really what i was looking for so people who would be compelling and interesting and also would represent Aspects of this really complicated story that I wanted to communicate to an audience that knew nothing about this at all, and then the last thing was I wanted to make sure that that I you know there were so many people I could have uh, made the stars of the show, but i I really w- needed a narrative arc like so I needed and I didn't know that when I started i didn't know I didn't know that these four characters would end up having sort of a real beginning, middle, and an end, but i in putting the book together. Ultimately, when I was finally sitting down and writing, that's how I decided to do it because that's just good storytelling. Yeah. Right? You know, so you want to bring your audience along with you. I don't think I could have made up these characters. I mean, (laughs) so many of their stories are so crazy, you know, and like that was the best part. I mean, it really is true. Like, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And so the fact that these people gave me access to their lives and were willing to allow me to be a fly on the wall, that was also a big part of it too, was just having that access to them. And there were people that I approached. I will say, were, I won't name who they are, but there are people who were supposed to be part of this project who got nervous about it. You know, right. And didn't want me to be with them all the time. And you know, felt they wanted to control the story or control my access. And that's not how I work. So um, and that's not journalism. So there were some people that felt very uncomfortable with it. And, you know, I need to have the access to be able to really tell the story the right way with all of the, you know, to tell the unvarnished truth.
0: For sure. And I think what's really interesting, um, you, know, you started this book a few years ago and talking about the unvarnished truth. You know, the new Chardonnay does address gender and racial diversity problems in the industry. You know, we're talking in June 2020 amid the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, which is so important. Do you think these problems have gotten worse compared to when you first started reporting? Or what do you think companies can do to alleviate these disparities? You've really been looking at it. Now it's really coming to the forefront, you know, because of some of the, you know, the terrible things that have happened over the past few weeks or, you know, have been captured over the past few. Weeks. So, yeah. talk to me about like what you've been seeing as you've sort of been following this for the past couple of years.
1: Well, I think one of the biggest takeaways for myself is, and again, this is coming at it just from my background covering the startup world, is access to capital for women and minority entrepreneurs is a real problem, and it's it's an it's an even bigger problem right now because capital is basically dried up in cannabis at, at, mm-hmm. right now. And so I feel like there's a couple things that need to happen. Number one, I mean, we need to have, we, I mean, I think the industry, you know, if there is banking reform in Washington, D.C., I think that will help some in the fact that right now, I mean, as you know, these businesses cannot access small business loans. They can't get loans from like their neighborhood banks. So if you are someone who um, falls in, you know, outside the category of being basically a white wealthy man with a, you know, amazing network from your Wall Street days or your days at an Ivy League school um, or some other rarefied, you know, group that you're in, it's very hard to raise money. To not only start these businesses but to scale them, and that leaves a lot of people out. And so I think banking reform is—you know—that Safe Banking Act. We'll see what happens. I, uh, my understanding is that it's still being discussed on Capitol Hill, passed the House as part of the Heroes Act. The Senate is supposed to take it up in conference. We don't know if if those provisions will make it through. I mean, I know right now I'm in the this next aid package has pretty much been stalled. It's my understanding. So. That may be at a standstill. But then, you know, I think there's the other piece of this is the state, you know, banking only goes so far. The bigger thing is at some point, the federal government acting and lifting prohibition in some way, whether it's passing the States Act, whether it's descheduling cannabis, because the thing is, when it comes down to capital, what's happening is angel investors, um, in particular, are not and, and pe- you know, pe- people are, and institutional investors too, I mean, they don't want to get involved in this industry because it's federally legal. Right. So the risks that they're taking on to back people, and so the pool of capital is really small anyway. And then, you know, as we've seen in Silicon Valley, it's just hard in general for people of color and women to raise venture money anyway, you know? And that goes back to unconscious bias and things like pattern matching where you have, you know, VCs from a certain background or angel investors from a certain background where they're looking for kind of, you know, the, the stereotype, if you will, of like, who's going to be a slam dunk, like who's the founder, you know, that kind of fits a certain profile. And what happens is, and this happens in tech, you know, if you don't fit that profile, if you're not an engineer from Stanford, or, you know, you're not a, a white guy in a, in a hoodie, you lose out. And, you know, cannabis is kind of going on that same track. And what makes it even, I think, what compounds it is the fact that it's federally illegal. So those are two things. I think freeing up capital, figuring out new ways for these businesses to access the resources they need to get off the ground and to scale, I think that's really important. And then I also think, look, it's the same as in tech. You know, it's putting women on boards. It's, um, you know, being, and, and people of color on boards and being, you know, casting a wide net when you're looking to hire and creating a culture of inclusion. I mean, all of that can happen within industry and then of course, the last piece is as these more states create these these programs where they're you know commercializing or regulating and taxing cannabis is to be really thoughtful about what has worked and what hasn't worked right um, in terms of Awarding licenses to people from communities, for example, that have were disproportionately damaged by the war on drugs, and you know what we've what we've seen. And if you you know, there are folks that I've interviewed and people that I've mentioned in the book who have really called out the industry to say and a government to say this isn't enough. It's not working. So I think as New York ultimately takes it up next year, I don't think it's going to happen this year. I think we're pretty much done. Um, you know, as it, you know, if in New Jersey. The ballot initiative passes in the fall you know Arizona you know whether it's by legislature or whether it's by voter ballot initiative I hope that the state um, policymakers really look closely at how to be more equitable in this in this industry I mean you saw what happened in New Jersey and even in New York last year these efforts completely broke down over social equity yeah people couldn't agree on how to do it and I think They need to listen more. And I think that there just needs to be really thoughtful analysis going into this. And look, we're all having this conversation nationally right now about systemic racism. And I think everybody needs to have a reckoning about how cannabis kind of fits into that and be really honest with ourselves, you know, about how, what are the meaningful ways that this can be remedied? It's, I mean, it's very sad to me. You know, as I write in the book, you know, there are people like Ted and Snoop who had this ideal that, and literally this was like their ideal getting into this industry was to help disenfranchise people. And really, you know, they haven't, it hasn't,
0: it doesn't look like that.
1: Yeah. No. And it, and it, I mean, they have invested in, you know, in women, but, yeah, but I think it was very idealistic what they thought about way back in 2012 when they were first having these conversations and how it's actually been, how it's actually been borne out, you know, at the state level and also within, you know, pri- private industry. For um, sure.
0: And I think also, like, at least I'm a hope like that, like this consciousness of like what needs to be done or what should be done, you know, has been like amplified on a national level. So, you know, people who sit out with those good intentions and business getting in the way, you know, keeping the lights on, hoping that, you know, they will be like um, reinvigorated, you know, to, to do those initiatives that they had planned, you know, from the get-go. So, I mean, that's my hope, at least, throughout these conversations.
1: I think that it's really about keeping it top of mind as you approach things. It's like, I had this, I was saying before we came on that I did this interview with the former publisher of the Washington Post, and we were talking about newsrooms and the lack of diversity in newsrooms, and, you know, the reckoning that's happening now as a result of all these protests, and the fact that newsrooms are overwhelmingly white. And, you know, and, and it's just what we were both saying. It's, you know, it's the onus on the people in power, honestly, to do the work. You know, it is not, the, the onus should not be on the people who, who don't have the power to educate us on how to do this. Like, we need to, the people who are in leadership, the people who run these companies, the people who make decisions about this need to be at the forefront of diversifying what they're doing and creating a culture of inclusion in, you know, inside their companies and inside these markets. It's just got to be deliberate work. It has, it, it has to be a priority.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you're still so, like you said, you did this um, interview, you know, with former publisher the Washington Post, you're still so tapped into, you know, the mainstream media scene, you know, and we talked about a lot of issues just now, like what industry stories or trends, and maybe they're not even as, you know, um, you know, a- as deep as, you know, think about social equity, like what stories or trends do you hope more mainstream reporters should be covering as it relates to cannabis?
1: Well, I don't think there's been a lot of great coverage about the impact of legalization on people who, you know, have suffered because of the war on drugs. Like you hardly ever see stories about expungement or, you know, the, the, the the real, I'm actually working on something about this right now, but the real challenges of like, Hey, it's great that, you know, you legalize adult use, but then you have to clear everybody's records. And what are the practical logistics of actually doing that? I mean,
0: that I think is that's a, why New Jersey broke down like last year. Like they just cannot figure out what to do with that, right? It's because it's really it hard. So affected by the war on drugs, you know, cities like Newark. And, and what do you do, right? right?
1: So, first, you know, how do you sift through the data and figure out, you know, who get, whose records get expunged, which charge, you know, which violations, which convictions, you know, all of that stuff. And then the follow up is like, how do you notify them? Right. How do, you, how do you tell them, okay, your record is cleared now? There's not a system in place to, to in California, there's not a, place, a system in place to, to do that yet. That's actually where I've, I've been talking to an organization called Code for America, yeah. which dispatches software engineers to go in and it's really cool. They go in and they design these systems, these algorithms to help prosecutors' offices figure out how to, how to clear these records. And now the next part of the puzzle is, well, how do you tell people? Because that information is is private, so right? How do you let them know that? Hey, you your conviction is cleared, you know. So so this stuff is super complicated. So I I think that that's certainly something that I'd like to see covered more. I think because the public needs to understand more about what's happening. I think the issue of impaired driving needs to be covered much more in depth. You know, I think we need to keep covering the impact of all of this, you know, the good and the bad. And I think that's really important because right now, you know, there, there is no federal oversight at all. And so, you know, some States are doing a good job. Some States aren't, and people don't totally understand, you know, and from a consumer safety point of view, they don't, I mean, there's so much misinformation and confusion. I think uh, it was BDS analytics put something out a while ago saying, I think it was like 50 55% of Americans don't know the difference between CBD and THC. Right. There's a lot, I mean, that's so basic because like, because here we are, you know, I've been covering this for several years, but that is a, that's a very basic thing that people don't understand that at all.
0: Yeah, I often forget, like, we have been doing this a long time and you have, you know, conversations that are outside of, like, you know, your little little circle, you know, of the industry. Like, okay, there's, you know, that's the thing, the exciting part, too. There's still so much that's misunderstood. And so much much to learn. Like, this really is, when people, like, you know, there are a lot of ups and downs in this industry. Like when you have those like bad days, you're like, God, we are just at the beginning. We were just scratching the surface. Most Americans doesn't even know what the, you know, the possibilities are, you know, for this plant. Yeah.
1: This is the first inning. And then I think, you know, look, covering the scientific research is really interesting. And yeah. again, that goes back to, we could have so much more clinical research going on here in the U.S. if Congress acted, you know, if, if, if this was not federally prohibited anymore, or there was some way to allow for more scientific or federal dollars to go into scientific research. I think we're, we don't really know all of the potential of of, of the plant. And I think that's really exciting. And I did have a chance to interview Dr. Mashulam, which was, Oh a- wow. Yeah. Yeah. I really wanted to go visit him in Israel. And it, unfortunately, like, I never, I never was able to actually get there, but we did, we did do an interview and I did interview another one of the scientists, um, also at his research Institute at Hebrew university. And, um, It was fascinating, and I just again like I don't think, you know, well this rolls off the tongue like the endocannabinoid system. Like honestly, people don't know what that is.
0: I can barely say it still, so yeah,
1: had to practice. No, but I mean seriously, like people don't get it. Like there's there is so much rich material for mainstream media to cover, and and it will get covered eventually. But I I do think after having gone through this these several years, like I hope that you'll eventually see you know, real cannabis beat reporters at some of these major publications, because the depth of knowledge you have to have to really understand events and what they mean in this industry, you know, as an outsider, you really don't understand why one thing is more significant than another. And I'm sure as you know, from where you, you sit, you know, a lot of the companies like they're constantly pitching stuff. That's just not, it's as someone once said to me early on, there's a lot of puffery in this industry yeah. And I think that's true. And I yeah. think, and and we they get a lot, away that's
0: not a thing, you know, <laughs> like we try to push back, you know, like, you
1: know, but they get away with it. A lot yeah.
0: of get away with Everything's it. so new, you know, it's so exactly. they get away with it being like, nobody knows, but at some point, you know, there's going to be like real, like, uh, you know, deep, impactful looks at like, you know, what the product is, what the company is. And let's right. you know, get away so with that.
1: I, I remember distinctly, I won't say what company it was, but I, they pitched me on, you know, something and they said it was like the first ever, I don't know, like clinical study on blah, 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 you know? And it ended up that like, it wasn't a, cl- it was a survey they were doing, mm-hmm. but they were running. It was not objective data. It was not, but I mean, I know to ask those questions because I come from traditional media and I'm a, and I'm a journalist, you know? And so I, and they're like, Oh, we're going to give you an exclusive. And I was like, yeah, I don't, like, yeah, this isn't, really, this isn't ready for prime time yet, but call me when, you know, you get some results or right. I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's interesting. And um, yeah, no, we really are only in the first inning.
0: And and also so you know, to that point, so how has this book like helped you or your peers understand the cannabis industry? Um, you know, was it like some of the research talking to scientists, or really was it like getting behind and learning about you know the characters? Like, how has it helped you? And what do you hope readers really take away from this reporting? Like, if they you know finish reading uh, the new Chardonnay, like what is that main you know, takeaway you want them to have?
1: Well, I think I want them to understand if they were questioning before how we reached this inflection point in the country to where you know two thirds of Americans are you know saying that they are okay with legalization i i think I want them to understand why that happened like how did that happen um so that's like you know from sort of like a policy point of view you know and and i, I you know i I want them as they l- in the places where they live, where this issue is being taken up, I want them to understand how the industry works. And I want them to understand how really, you know, complicated it is. And, you know, it's not just about somebody just deciding, you know, they're going to sell marijuana. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I and, and also understand the whole ecosystem of companies, you know, that it, when we talk about job creation and the tax revenue, you know, it is not just about people selling marijuana products, as you know, you know, it's software and testing. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's this whole thing. And so I think it's important for people to understand how sophisticated it is so that when they're going to the ballot box, or they're watching their lawmakers take this up, you know, that they. They have an understanding of of what this, what this is. And then the last thing, more than anything, I really just wanted it to be entertaining. You know, I really wanted it to be about these four intrepid entrepreneurs that I'm, you know, and taking you on this adventure and it, cannabis happens to be the backdrop and you're going to learn about cannabis, but it's not, you know, it's really just this great wild tale, you know, that, that's really what I wanted to do. And I actually thought about it. From the beginning, and I wanted to write it like a beach read. I wanted to write it so that, you know, hey, I'm going to learn about cannabis, but I'm also going to like, you know, find out what it's really like, you know, to start one of these businesses and all of the, you know, I mean, the crazy stuff that these people go through and the risks that they take. I think it's fascinating.
0: Especially people who've been you follow people who've been in the industry for a really long time. Like, like you said, you can't make it up, right? Um, And I think a lot of people, as as you know, having these conversations and throughout the country, people do want to know what it really looks like to work in legal cannabis. There's so much misconception. Like there still are those stoner stereotypes. I think, you know, a book like yours will probably help, you know, break down some of those stereotypes, let people know that these are real businesses, real people, right? Some of them are moms, you know, just trying to, you know, do something, you know, with this, like, uh, you know, this burgeoning new
1: space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I said, from the very beginning, when we first started talking, everything that I thought it was going to be, it was the complete opposite. Right. everything i mean literally there's not one aspect of this story that was that that followed you know the the assumptions that i made I, every single one of them was completely disproven and so it like i i think i said in the introduction of, of the book you know it was an alice in wonderland moment you know everything was the opposite of what i thought and that just makes for a really great story
0: yeah I mean, I think people, readers are really going to, you know, appreciate that. And then also, you know, s- speaking to people and having your experience. And I-, I like to end like the show with this question, you know, you've twins, I- I've got a bunch of kids at the end of the week, we play this game, you know, Rose and thorn. you know, what the highs and lows of the weeks are. So what have the highs and lows been for you since, you know, you, you know, delved into this industry and you know, you've done a lot, you've done, you know, reporting, you've been writing the book. Talk to me about like those highs and lows.
1: So I would say that, you know, the greatest most enjoyable aspect of this whole project was the depth of it. And the fact that I had the time unlike working in daily news where, you know, I'm just trying to make deadline. This was the kind of topic that really demanded a lot of research and talking to literally hundreds of people with all viewpoints, all kinds of viewpoints on it. And so It is a luxury as a reporter to be able to have the kind of time to do that and to really be able to ruminate and think. And then on top of it, to be able to really, as as an artist and as a creator, to kind of think about how do I want to tell the story? That was the most amazing thing. That also was the hardest thing.
0: Right.
1: Because there were so many times. Well, first of all, the story is changing. The story is constantly changing. I had to turn it in. I had a deadline. And, you know, so I thought I wanted to do it a certain way and then there would be a new development. And and then I would be like, okay, well now I'm, and so, and constantly talking to my sources and constantly making sure that what I was reporting and how I was structuring the story was still accurate because everything's, you know, everything's changing. So that was really hard. And it was, it was the most enjoyable thing, but it was also really stressful and, And then, and then the other part was, you know, again, being very mindful of the fact that I I wanted to make sure I had a lot of different voices in the book and constantly questioning, did I choose, did I choose the right four people? You know, did I, you know, should I have chosen someone else? And, or, and like I said before, I mean, some of it really just came down to access. And there were folks that like, if I had spent more time with them, if I, if they had given me a little bit more time or allowed me to be in their life a little bit more where I could have gotten more material than I'm than it might have that person might have been but I mean I'm I'm curious to hear what you think I mean I feel like the four characters really represent different aspects of the industry
0: yeah and then as it relates to that so your book is coming out when at the end
1: of the summer coming out August 11th from yes. currency and where can we find more information about the book so you can go to heathercabot.com and you can order it wherever you order books. It is available for pre-sale now, and pre-sales really help a lot. And I will be recording the audio book, so it'll be available in audio as well uh, when it comes out on August 11th. So if you prefer to listen to audiobooks, you'll hear me narrate the story. And um, thank you. I'm I'm excited. Well, I'm
0: far more excited to read you know the full thing. I, I I went through through the galley. Thank you so much for sending it to us. But uh, I can't wait to have it on my coffee table. Well, I will send you a signed copy. Oh, my God, I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: You're welcome.